This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have the godfather, Dr. Paul Grundy. Dr. Grundy is the Chief Transformation Officer at Innovacer, and he is known as the godfather of the patient-centered medical home movement. Dr. Grundy, what can I say about him? He's someone that's really driven healthcare transformation for the last 30 years. I mean, he was the founding president of the patient-centered primary care collaborative. He led a revolution with the patient-centered medical home. He was bestowed with the prestigious Barbara Starfield Primary Care Leadership Award in 2016. He was given the 2012 National Committee for Quality Assurance Quality Award for his impactful contribution to redefining the primary care landscape. He's notably known for his tenure at IBM as the Global Director for Healthcare Transformation, where he earned that godfather name, and you're going to hear about that today in the episode. So many things he's done on a humanitarian level, on a diplomatic level, on an international stage. You know, he was known for his work with being an ambassador to Denmark and really creating a partnership and exploring their primary care system. He's done so much in, in the, the world of medicine. And, you know, Daniel, I, I don't know what else we could say other than this is just such an amazing conversation from one of the brightest minds in healthcare. And it was really a pleasure for, you know, for me personally to connect with him today. Eric, totally agree. Dr. Grundy has been somebody I've looked up to for a long time with a focus in my early career on primary care. And what an awesome opportunity to connect with somebody like Dr. Grundy and, and hear the messages that he's got to share about you know, patient-centered medical home, health equity, physician burnout, moral injury, data, the importance of the where the data is kept and the accountability for that. And his insights and thoughts around workforce development, the whole conversation is really compelling. And I think our listeners will find it really informative. I agree with you on that, Dan. And I think the number one thing, at least for me and in this conversation today, was that relationships matter. 
and the human experience in healthcare. And that's at the core of everything that he's done in leading digital transformation, the medical home movement, and the work that he's doing in value-based care. So let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Grundy as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Paul Grundy, welcome to the Race to Value. It's such a great honor to be with you today. Only a pleasure. Well, Dr. Grundy, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over these last few months, and I had the pleasure of reading Dan Polino's exceptional book, Trusted Healers, which was written about your worldwide crusade for better healthcare. And I just can't wait to begin this conversation and share your insights with our audience. So it's truly an honor. And I thought a great place to start our conversation would be to talk about your background, especially in terms of the experiences that you've had abroad. I mean, you've had such a a storied career and life experiences that have taken you all over the world. I mean, you've traveled more miles than any physician in history, probably. You lived through turmoil in Sierra Leone and Yemen. You watched a revolution unfold in the former USSR. You experienced upheaval in South Africa. You've experienced diverse cultures and situations in South Korea, Singapore, Cuba, Saudi Arabia. You've served as a healthcare ambassador for the nation of Denmark and experienced firsthand the best primary care in the world. You've also served in the U.S. Department of State, where you're responsible for leading interactions between health and diplomacy, and uh, you've, you did such things as leading the, the Clinton-Yeltsin Health Initiative with Russia. You were responsible for advising the United States ambassadors on healthcare programs for diplomatic posts, including your work with Nelson Mandela and setting up the first U.S. policy and program addressing HIV and the AIDS epidemic in Africa. I mean, I could just go on and on, but as a humanitarian and a crusader for change, you really have an interesting story to tell. And, and I'm interested in where that will intersects with value-based care and physician leadership. And your work with Nelson Mandela was really of interest to me. He noticed something in you, and he said you had a rare gift of personal magic that made people really want to follow you in healthcare. And he called you a good troublemaker as well as someone that really looked for innovative disruptions to benefit humankind. And I think that's really where we are in this value-based care movement. Sometimes we use value-based care as kind of this pseudo market business term, and there's a lot of jargon around it. And we think about health policy and the, the payment models, but it's really about the moral imperative. You know, it's about really fundamentally changing how we deliver care and, and creating a, a more trusting relationship with patients that creates those better outcomes. So I guess in my first question today, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think we can learn from other countries about this true definition of value-based care, what it's really about in terms of maximizing health and providing relationship-based care? And, and then second to that, are there any anecdotes that you can share with our listeners from your international experiences, which can inform their thinking about the race to value that we're in in this country? When I begin to think about what it is that's fundamental and foundational in a delivery system that works, I go back to growing up in Africa, where there's such belief in that traditional healer. And, and I think we're hardwired to want to have somebody in our life that can help us when the chips are down. We're social animals. And so I think what's fundamental and foundational in a relationship, in a delivery system that really works, is, is a relationship of trust at the base of a delivery system that works. And, and when I look around the world at 
successful models. I, I think probably one of my favorites is my experience in Denmark. And what's fundamental and foundational there is that every citizen that I've met in Denmark knows the name of their primary care provider. They tell you stories about them. I was in a restaurant. I took the leadership of Kaiser to Denmark some years ago to show them what the Danes had did in their system redesign. You know, and everybody we met, I would ask, who's your primary care doc? And they would all tell me. I was in a Turkish restaurant and I asked this waitress what her primary care doc's name was. And she said, that's a really strange question. I really don't know his name. I just call him Hans by his first name. And, and I think having that place and delivery system that is, is what I have seen and studies have shown is that that reduces overall cost by about a third. And the mortality in systems that have that as the foundation are 19% less. In a paper that, that, that I saw and read and wrote about, I don't know, way back in 2003 or 2004. And so when we were looking at, at, at systems of change, when I was the medical director at IBM those years ago, you know, we really we really talked about going back to that foundation and then taking that foundation and making it the system integrator. Where in the delivery system should data go and be held accountable? And Tao Shia, who was a pediatrician and recently died, was the person who framed the concept of medical home. And what he was talking about wasn't a home for the patient, wasn't a home for the doctor, it was a home for the data. If you're going to have data, where does it reside? You see, what Cal saw was the complexity of dealing with children with special needs. And because children with special needs, they have engagement with their teachers, with their social workers sometimes, with their pediatrician, with multiple entities. And what he quickly saw was that if they weren't all seeing from the same sheet of music, if they didn't all have the same data, things went south in a hurry. So I think what should be fundamental and foundational for accountable care is that foundation where every person has a relationship of trust with the healer. And that, that is the place in the system that's the system integrated, where all of your data should be available and should be coordinated at that system of trust level. Dr. Grundy, I love that response. Thank you. And I, I want to ask you a little bit more about your experience with international travel and kind of building on this concept of, of the trust and the social animals that we are. Uh, talk a little bit more about your upbringing and how that shaped your approach to medicine. And as I understand, you're the son of Quaker missionaries. You were immersed in an enriching experience living outside of the U.S. during your early formative years as a child. You grew up deep in the African bush among tribal natives in the primitive heart of Sierra Leone, and the invaluable experiences you had there as the son of American missionaries allowed you to learn about different cultures, understand and apply deeply held tribal beliefs into your own life, and taught you what really matters in the world. An interesting story is as a young boy, you became known among the traditional healers in the tribe as a powerful messenger of the spirits, and they called you the boy who could hear the message of the praying mantis meaning that you could hear the voice of the infinite in the small. I can't help but think with these formative experiences in traditional healing as, as a child, 
how that impacted you to come to realize the power of the, the spirit world and awakened the role of the healer within you. And at the core of your healing spirit, I think is a deeply held value that we're all on the earth to make a difference. And healthcare is a way to create equity through healing. So everyone can be given that opportunity through health and wellness to make their mark on the world. As we look at our American healthcare system, and we can't help but see in the data that there are these systemic issues in our care delivery model that create disparities in care with minoritized and vulnerable communities. And it's just become all the more apparent lately. And routine medical practice continues to disadvantage black and brown patients. And, and we know that this must change if we're to truly transform our healthcare system and improve outcomes for all. So with that context, my question for you is, could you provide your perspective on this traditional healing concept of everyone matters and how that can be applied in value-based care to advance health equity and overcome the structural manifestation of racism that's hardwired into the system? And further, how do you see the forces of equity and value coming together to reshape the American healthcare system in the years to come to create more patient-centered, culturally competent models? Yes, yeah, so I come from a, a deep tradition uh, of, of Quakerism, and I guess that's the gist of, of what my belief system is. My uncle, Henry Cadbury, on my grandmother's side, my great uncle, was presented the Nobel Prize for Peace in 47 for the work he did in social reform and, and creating the Quaker, the, the American Friends Service Committee, um, alternative service, et cetera. And I had the privilege of spending uh, the summer before college and the last summer of my great uncle's life with him. And he, he taught me the eight laws of social change. And, and the eight laws of social change are really impacted so many things in, um, in our society. I mean, it was the core of what abolition was all about, public education, prison reform, women's suffrage, civil rights. You know, it was the core of what Mahatma Gandhi believed in, in, in nonviolent reform for the change of India. I, I guess as a Quaker, we're taught that if you keep yourself <laughs> quiet enough, and listen to that voice inside of you that everybody has, irregardless of what your religious belief system is, and you follow that voice, you can make a difference. And, and I just decided that that's what I want to do. And, and those eight laws, I think, are really, really important. I think the first law is the individuals and individuals as a collective must share a common intent. You know, small groups of people are, are what change the world and what normally changes the world, right? The second law is the individual in the group may have goals, but they may not have cherished outcomes. So, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to look big enough around a goal without having a, a, an individual cherished outcome. And I think the other thing that was really important to me is that those goals, you have to accept that they might not be reached in your lifetime, right? I mean, you, you have to accept that what you're trying to do, and healthcare reform is an example of that, is probably going to continue to change, hopefully in a positive way, after your short life is over. I think individuals uh, in the group must accept that they don't get credit for it, right? I mean, you have to be willing to allow others to get the credit for something you do and be willing to, to have change happen without you getting credit for it. I think each person in the group has to force away violence in the Quaker tradition, nonviolent change. You know, you have to have 
your private life consistent with your public posture. You have to live, you have to walk the talk. And I think individuals in the group and the group collective must always act from a beingness of life affirming integrity, i.e., you know, the, the basic principles of simplicity, integrity, etc. I think that's fundamental and foundational for, for delivering change. It's 12 people uh, in a coffee shop in London that got together and decided that slavery was wrong and they were going to change the world. I mean, that that was unheard of at the time. So those are, if you ask what my fundamental values are, that that's what I sort of take. I think the other thing that's really, really important in delivering social change is not the leader, but the early adapters, the early followers. If you're not able to inspire followers, if, if others don't have that cause, your opportunity for, for change is, is pretty limited. And I think what I fundamentally understood sometime in my first or second year of medical school is the current delivery system of healthcare in our country, and perhaps in many other parts of the world as I've seen it, is a form of violence. It was and and continues to evolve into what I think of as a milking machine, where an episode of care is is what's valued. Um, Whether that episode of care is is necessary or not necessary, um, episodes of care are are provided because of, of what I think of as the three legs of the stool. It's about a cultural shift away from an episode of care to managing a population. That's the hardest. It's about payment change. You know, there's only one way to hurt a cat, and that's to move the food. If you continue to put the food in the wrong place, if you continue to put payment around an episode of care and not around providing comprehensive population management with data, you're going to continue to to value a head in the bed versus keeping head out of the bed. You know, and lastly, I think, is the tools and the technology that make it possible to actually have a plan for every human being so that you can manage that population without without the ability to have a plan, without the understanding of what you need to do for that person, irregardless of, of their race or society, and understanding the complexity of that um, and having that data in front of you at the point of care, whether they're there seeing you or not, you're not going to get very far. Dr. Grundy, I really appreciate you sharing your background and your values, and it certainly seems like your experiences in Africa and your immersion in the Quaker faith and you know what you spoke about in terms of the eight laws of social change that's really created the foundation to which you're you've been serving the world you know for, uh, throughout your entire lifetime and as i look at your career in healthcare i mean you've spent so much time at the heart of this crusade to really create uh, more relationship-based uh, primary care. And it's not unlike a social movement, you know, as you spoke about, I mean, this this movement towards a medical home model. And, you know, you've been on the forefront evangelizing around the importance of that model and how it can really solve a crisis that we have in our system in terms of cost and quality and physician morale. And this model of medical home, it really focuses on team-based care, and it emphasizes the cultivation of that trusting patient relationship, which is really at the heart of, I think, what you were speaking about and moving the the, the mouse with the cheese and really creating the, the incentive around the relationship. And, and it's all about that social movement and those underpinnings as well and leading through that. And we look at all these great leaders in American history who have challenged us to be better. I mean, you have 
you know, like JFK asking individuals to step up and Ronald Reagan admonishing communists to join the free world and Martin Luther King Jr. who provided us with this powerful anthem for change and advocating for, for civil rights. And I think about you and the healthcare history books. I mean, you have been a crusader with your own version of this I have a dream vision for transformation and your legacy for change, I think, was really cemented during your early years at IBM. And you know, you know I'm going to bring it up, but you know, this prestigious nickname you have of the godfather of the patient-centered medical home. And you know, and as you spoke about earlier, I mean, that model was invented way before your involvement and time with IBM, but but you were really the one that gave a voice and definition and structure and made that the patient-centered medical home movement real. And then you took that forward and you created the patient-centered primary care collaborative or the PCC, which is a coalition of more than a thousand organizations and individuals and employers and consumer and patient family advocacy groups, patient quality organizations, health plans, labor unions, hospitals, physicians. You brought all these groups together to really work to develop and advance an effective and efficient health system that really builds on that strong foundation of primary care and patient-centeredness. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Grundy, if you could share with our listeners your vision of the medical home and how does it enable those trusting patient relationships and how does it allow us to better leverage the power of data in team-based care? And and then, you know, of course, I mean, I, I know you've spoken about this several times, but I'd love to hear it. Can you also tell us how you got that legendary name of the Godfather, you know, during your time at IBM by really changing the covenant of primary care? I'm delighted to start there with the Godfather name. And by the way, it, is, it isn't the good kind. It's the kind that, you know, swim with the fishes kind that I got dubbed that name. So we brought together 47 of the Fortune 100 back, I think, in about 2005 or six, And then we reached out to the House of Primary Care, and we asked them for a set of principles upon which we could change the covenant of how we bought care, right? Moving towards a model of, of population health and relationship-based primary care. And we brought all of the healthcare plans into the room back in about 2006. So Aetna, United, Cigna, Humana, WellPoint at the time, Anthem. And, and Sam Nesselbaum, who, who was the then the chief medical officer at Anthem, said, you know, Paul, we've got to do this. We know as healthcare plans that we've got to do this, but you have to keep our feet to the fire because if you don't, you, the Fortune 47, will all go in our own direction and, and we'll ride in the next, the, the person in front of us wake, right? We'll let them carry the, the load and the burden of the cost of this change and we'll ride in their way. So we all agreed to do a press release the next day in which all of the healthcare plans along with all of primary care and the companies agreed that each of the plans would do at least three pilots, they would do it in at least three locations, and they would collaborate with each other in this effort. About six months in, one of the largest ones backed out. I took them to the New York Times woodshed, and uh, by about 11 o'clock the next morning, 14 of us had notified that particular company that we were no longer going to do business with them. And so they kind of came back into the fold and agreed to continue down the path of doing uh, pilots. I think it was John Englehart, who was then the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, did an editorial, did a comment in, in the New England Journal that basically said, this Dr. Grundy isn't the one that invented this idea. He's just trying to buy it. He's just trying to organize the ability to buy it for companies that buy healthcare for their employees. 
but because he has the pressure of the buying position before it, he's surely the godfather of the idea <laughs> because we kind of held the, the machine gun of money over the heads of the healthcare plants. This particular company did about $800 million worth of technology business with IBM. And so within a day or two, the person who was in charge of the buy of the technology from IBM complained to my bosses at IBM uh, about what I had did in the New York Times and, and et cetera. And so I ended up sitting across headquarters building uh, at our board table across from uh, our CEO and our, and our deputy CEO and, and my boss, who was at the time was Randy McDonald, the head of HR. And uh, Jenny, who eventually became our CEO, said, Dr. Grundy, we know you got an editorial saying that you were the godfather, but we would like to see a heck less horse heads in our business. <laughs> and Randy McDonald said, oh, no, he said, you can't stop Randy from doing this. We just got to do this as a culture and society. And besides that, healthcare plans love it when we talk dirty to them. <laughs> So hence the name Godfather. Uh, it kind of, you know, got enough spread around in the New England Journal of Medicine that, that, that I got dubbed, dubbed that. When you think about the complexity of healthcare nowadays, what was clear to me at the time was that what a physician should do with their time, given what they've learned and, and the amount of energy they've put into it, is really two things. It's difficult diagnostic dilemmas and relationships of trust with their patients. When I really look at what else should be done to that patient, and there's a heck of a lot more that should be, it's almost always done better by somebody else um, than it is by the physician. Medication management, it's almost always done better by somebody who's trained as a clinical pharmacist. They have much deeper understanding of, of medication management that, than we do as a clinician. Behavioral issues are much better handled by a behavioralist. Um, nurse educators probably do a better job of, of education. And, and so when you think about what you really need to do with something as complex as, say, diabetes, where you have literally hundreds of things you can do for that patient versus one, which we used to have when I started medical school, which was insulin. I mean, all of those elements are so, so important, right? Every chronic disease has a behavioral component, I think something as complicated as diabetes probably needs medication management, particularly when you have other organ systems that tend to be involved as you age. So if you're going to do that, then you have to have some way of pulling that all together as a system integrator, right? And, and that should fundamentally, I think, be within the house of that trusted relationship. Um, and why? Um, I think because when you, when you look at a functional MRI of somebody who's thinking about a relationship of trust with a healer and you're talking about it, the part of the brain that lights up, that indicates where that process is occurring, it, it, you know, is the same part of the brain that lights up when you talk about your religion or your faith system, right? It's fundamental and deep and it's built into our very evolution, I think. So why wouldn't we use that as, as what would be foundational to delivery system that works? Upon that foundation, then you can build much more accountable care uh, as the Danes have done, right? You, you should be able to have at that point of care within the ownership of the physician, everything that happens to you in the delivery system. And, and that should be then made available 
to anybody and everybody who touches you, whether they're a transplant surgeon, a specialist, your social worker, et cetera. Dr. Grundy, I think you've hit the nail on the head and, you know, considering what you've said about how much physicians should be doing and what are the appropriate things that physicians should be doing. And I know a big part of the medical home is the idea of team, but, you know, we're at this point where in our current environment with COVID and all the things that have been placed on people, uh, on clinicians and caregivers, that we're in this kind of crisis of, of moral injury and burnout. And I'm so inspired by your work at IBM with the medical home model. And you not only figured out the best solution for the primary care crisis, but, you know, you assembled these stakeholders to orchestrate change. And this was the message that many healthcare organizations didn't want to hear, especially those comfortable with their financial success in a fee-for-service model. But in your crusade, you helped primary care providers see the medical home concept would improve quality, reduce costs, and alleviate this burnout. This quadruple aim of physician satisfaction is such an important aspect of value-based care. Uh, as I mentioned, physicians are struggling now. Half of all doctors wouldn't even recommend medicine as a career to a, another student looking for career advice. The shift is important to understand because the attitudes and feelings of doctors bear directly on the way they treat patients as well. And it's been projected that burnout's affecting over half of physicians in practice. And a recent Harvard report even called burnout a public health crisis that urgently demands action. Some physicians are even going so far as to say the profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient to describe the pain that they feel when the fee-for-service system prevents them from doing what's right and, in, and thereby forces them to inflict harm on patients where physicians themselves, you know, experiencing that extended for, uh, form of injury. So Dr. Grundy, how do we address this issue of physician burnout and moral injury to ensure it will not further erode the mental health of doctors and radically undermine patient care? What role can value-based care in medical homes play in improving the situation? Well, the good news is that when you see a delivery system that begins to align around the value proposition, you really, you really see a reduction in burnout. In visiting, as I have over the years, and I spent many, many hours in, in primary care physician's office, it would break my heart. What I saw was physicians only spending about a third of their time doing what they should do versus what they have to do given the current alignment between payment and the system, right? You know, I, I think perhaps the most offensive thing that, that I see is that physician becoming the, the scribe. I mean, what a stupid use of a doctor's time <laughs> to have them type. Um, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I'm on the faculty at the University of Utah and, and many years ago, probably 17 years ago, we, we did care by design there. And, and what we did was we, we, we took MAs we went into local community high schools and, and we offered them an opportunity to spend their last six months of, of high school at the local community college being certified as an MA. And then they came to work in one of the primary care clinics at the University of Utah system. And so there were 2.2 MAs for every doc. So what would happen is that the doc would walk into the room or the nurse practitioner and the MA would go over to the computer and, and they would capture what was transpiring between the patient and the doctor, and the doctor, only thing he had to do on that EMR was sign the prescription. 
I mean, that fundamentally changed uh, the, the dynamics in, in that process. The patients just loved it. The docs loved it. And we, we, we designed the flow of that clinic such that there weren't physician offices. The physicians sat in, in, in their quad with, with, the, with the nurse practitioners, with the MAs, with the behavioralist, with the clinical pharmacists. So they begin to get that understanding. I went to the orientation for new medical students at the University of Utah, again, probably in about 2010. And instead of having four physicians who learned chief complaint, right, which was one of the earliest thing we did in clinical medicine, we, we, we had a, a, a patient who would, would, four medical students would bang up against the patient to try to get an understanding of what their chief complaint was. There was a nursing student, a behavioralist a student, a pharmacy student, and a medical student all on that team. So from day one, they learned this is going to be a team sport. I was last out in Utah a couple of years ago prior to the pandemic, and I had the privilege of meeting the 15th physician who was a, who was a Somali uh, immigrant kid who, who had started as an MA, went on to get his bachelor's degree, and went on to medical school, and is now a family physician you know, in the University of Utah system. So really at the community level, um, kids coming out of the communities, going into to practice primary care. You know, when a system is designed like that, they don't burn out. Um, it, it, it's phenomenal. Um, we've had no trouble recruiting physicians. Uh, care by design, university you know, in Utah, I mean, in, in Vermont, where they took two cents out of every sick care dollar to create the role of a community coordinator um, we were hemorrhaging physicians, and once that happened, and the the community began to have a plan around all their patients, right? So, so those community coordinators would pull together all the not for profits. They would create a plan for every patient that was broader than the clinical services. It was the social services. So, a newly diagnosed diabetic would be introduced to the diabetic hiking club. Would be introduced to the nutritionist in the grocery store. Be introduced to their own pharmacist in their local pharmacy was going to sit down with them and help them with their, with, their, with their pharmacy management. You know, all of a sudden you have this whole community that's supporting that patient. And I'm sitting there in one of these meetings in St. Johnsbury and a young Anglican priest in her 30s stands up and she says, never again will we allow one of our diabetic patients to suffer an amputation because we, the community, don't have a plan around right? I mean, so it's happening, right? It's just, it's just happening slower than I would hope it to happen. And I just hope it'll change, enough change will occur that it'll happen in my lifetime, but I suspect not. <laughs> but, but I'm patient. Dr. Grundy, as we think about the, the burnout amongst providers due to the broken system, you know, you've mentioned a couple things about the challenges we're facing. We, we have a We've built a system that's actually unable to lead in consumer-centric innovation. You know, we we know that our healthcare system is far behind where other industries are at in consumerism. We've got a healthcare system that we've built with incentives that inexorably generate terrible and perverse results. These incentives emphasize healthcare, as you mentioned, over any other aspect of health and well-being. They emphasize treatment over prevention and that disguise true costs, and they favor complexity and discourage transparent competition based on price or quality. That result also in a generational pyramid scheme rather than sustainable financing 
and most importantly, remove consumers from our irreplaceable role as the ultimate insurer of value. I'm inspired not only by your work in transforming the system, but you're also a leader who is focused on helping consumers navigate the chaos of the current healthcare environment. And you published a book a few years ago with your friend, the late Dr. Peter Anderson, entitled Lost and Found, A Consumer's Guide to Healthcare, which serves as an uh, up-to-the-minute guide, so to speak, designed to help consumers navigate the obstacles that stand between them and high-quality, affordable healthcare. Can you please share your views on healthcare consumerism as it stands, how patients can recognize the value inherent in a strong patient-physician relationship and how they can save money without sacrificing quality in today's changing healthcare environment? You know, I think what's fundamental and foundational to what I wrote about with Peter in that book was really, was really you know, sort of, sort of interviewing those people who are going to provide healthcare to you. What we did at IBM was we notified our patients whenever a primary care home was created within a certain mile radius of where they lived. And then we encouraged those practices that didn't convert to convert so that their patients didn't leave them and go to another practice. But I think, you know, one of the first things you need to do is really ask your clinician such simple things as after hours access, such simple things as telehealth or remote ability to connect. I think it makes no sense at all to to identify a pediatrician that won't see that won't see kids on weekends, right? I mean, kids get sick on weekends. You know, really looking out for those early adapters and best practices of where you're going to want to engage. And more and more, I see those practices emerging, and I see how well they thrive. I mean, my my friend Tom Lee, who started One Medical you know, has spread all over the country and in, in, in is thriving, right? And they provide access, same-day access. They'll always answer your, your, your text, et cetera. Within the Danish context, um, for example, aligning, aligning payment with what you want, one-third of payment is how well you serve your patients. So in the Danish system, if you answer your email in 20 minutes, you get more money than if you answer it in two hours and more money if you, than you have to answer in 24 hours. If you provide after-hour service, you get paid for providing that after-hour service. So one-third of your income is how well you service your patient, up to including having adequate parking, right? I mean, it's those kinds of things that, that patients, when, what they demand, what they want, is what you get paid for. In a system of care in which you're going to be rewarded for delivering an episode of care, and that's it, fee for service, you're going to get episodes of care that, by the way, a huge percentage of the care that's delivered is care that's unnecessary and dangerous and harmful because the incentive is, is aligned incorrectly. The other thing that, that I talked about in, in that particular book at the time was really about coverage and how you get coverage in a world in which we were transitioning into uh, into the Affordable Care Act with you know 40 million or so that were uninsured you know trying to help those folks begin to find adequate coverage um, because that's the other thing that's just really important um, if you're just completely outside the system identifying community health centers which provide free or, or inexpensive access 
in many parts of the country is, is, a, is a really uh, important thing to do. I, I was instrumental in helping expand the community access to federally qualified clinics to the tune of about $14 billion during the Affordable Care Act. And expanding that sort of level of service, I think, has been really important to, to many, many communities. I personally get my care before I moved from New York at a community health center. Great care, young, committed, dedicated providers, and I get to practice my Spanish. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a win-win. And they, they, get, they take my insurance card, and, and, and it's rewarding them as well. Well, Dr. Grundy, I wanted to talk more about the power of data. And you mentioned this earlier and the value movement and the early days of the patient-centered medical home concept. And one can't help but think about, you know, as we move our country towards population health, we really need to utilize the the best technology and analytics to achieve better outcomes in our system. And in this age of intelligence, it's really critical to leverage data and help the healers, you know, deliver the highest quality of care. And as the value based care paradigm is expanding at this unprecedented speed. And I think we're only in the early stages of that, but we're really going to need physician champions to lead in this new era of innovation to drive healthcare efficiency with cutting edge technologies. And a few years ago, you became the chief transformation officer at Innovacer, which is really leading the way in this digital transformation of healthcare. And I'm excited about the work that you're doing at Innovacer to really build this revolutionary data platform to further drive healthcare AI and supportive value-based care. Can you describe how it empowers providers and value-based care with advanced analytics at the point of care? And how does that system augment the intelligence of the doctor and the EHR with more comprehensive insights? So, you know, what I fundamentally think and, and why I joined IBM all these years ago and, and why I, when I discovered Innovasia, was so excited is that data is going to do for the doctor's minds, the provider's minds, the, the trusted healer's minds, in the way that x-ray and imaging has changed their vision. When I was in medical school, an ultrasound was a shadowy thing you looked at. Now it's an anatomy textbook, right? I mean, it's just clear what you see. And that's the transition I think that data is beginning to go through from spending hours looking for the information you need for your patient to having at the point of care exactly what you need when you need it is so important. You know, the journey is really one that's very fundamental. We are the last industry in which we are the master builder. The Flexner model that emerged in 1911 by Flexner when he did his report on the trends in what changed healthcare in America was to take a physician, to take a, a smart person, <laughs> test them to make sure that they can store data and admit them to medical school, spend eight years of training through college and medical school, and then three or four years in residency training. Why? So at the point of care, the data that they need to take care of a patient with that particular problem within their specialty is stored in their brain. That's a master builder, right? That's how they used to build cathedrals in the 1300s. We have outgrown that in the complexity of what we have to store. We now understand we need a team. We now understand that we need, we need a computer and we need data that we can turn to instead of what's stored in our heads. Because... Our data storage device is not very good. It's pretty flawed. <laughs> and, and so that transition into a data-based 
population health model really requires access to good data. And, and that's been a huge, huge difficulty in achieving that for many reasons, including payment and, and just the complexity of healthcare. I mean, I think about it and I think, you know, healthcare is not rocket science. It's a heck of a lot more complicated than, than understanding the, the physical laws that you can launch a rocket safely to the moon and bring them back. I mean, it's, you know, it's a hundred people with diabetics with their own personality that you have to deal with. And to be able to have at the point of care information that's disparate, right? The social determinants of health, the claims data, the clinical data, and have that pop up in a way that it's accessible to everybody on that team that's caring for the patient is making a huge difference. On average, it's saving about 3.2 minutes of time per patient in a system that allows that to happen. It's really exciting. That journey is, is one that we really need to continue. But the other thing that's clear is that machine learning and artificial intelligence is really, really good at patterns. We as a human being can put seven or eight things together in our head and create a pattern. A machine can do millions. And so that process of modernizing how you engage the patient in the way that Amazon shops you or that Uber drives you, understanding that a woman with three kids who is single and works full time statistically is most likely to respond to a 45 word text after eight on Tuesday, <laughs> right? I mean, those kinds of things a machine is good at uh, in machine learning and applying that to the patient is just phenomenal. I was with a patient in Michigan and we were walking out of the practice and, and on her cell phone before she got in her car was a, a, a little text reminder of what just happened. Medicines were prescribed, what the follow-up was about, what she needed to do. I mean, the core of that experience was there for her to reread and, and to remind her. And, and, you know, since she was a woman, a married woman with three kids, I'm sure the algorithm would, would probably say, you know, before six on Thursday or whatever it is. But I mean, that ability to pull that sort of data and information into that relationship, I think particularly now that we're beginning to do a lot of our care with telehealth, um, is immensely important. But I continue to remind everybody that these are just tools that support that relationship of trust with the healer. It's the core relationship of trust that allows you to really make a difference in somebody's life. I can tell one more story quickly, and that is that is experience I had in Iowa. We were seeing in the system there that was at risk for managing a population, an uptick in hospitalizations for hypoglycemic events. And when we began to look at the data of where that was occurring, it was occurring in a few zip codes and it was occurring at the end of the pay period. What were the clinicians doing about it before they looked at that data? They were fiddling with the insulin levels, right? Because clearly if they were being hospitalized because of their hypoglycemic events, they needed to adjust the insulin down, right? Et cetera. What was really happening is they were running out of food. And when you began to understand that what you were dealing with was, was a population that just simply had a choice between paying rent and, and buying food towards the end of their paying period, then you begin to understand that you bring in tools like Aunt Bertha, you connect with the county community healthcare workers, you know, you connect with the food banks, and you begin to nip the real problem in the bud versus fiddling with insulin levels because the insulin level wasn't the problem, it was the problem they didn't have any food.
Well, Dr. Grundy, I wanted to ask you also more about AI, and I read the the innovator's prescription years ago by Clayton Christensen. And, you know, he described the landscape of medicine evolving from one that's intuitive guesswork and pattern recognition to one that's more precise and, you know, having targeted medicine. And that goes exactly to the point that you were making earlier about the rate of knowledge expansion and healthcare and the profession of medicine and how the human brain just can't process all of that. And you have to have a sophisticated way to make decisions and create curated interventions. And it's been said that the medical knowledge doubles every 73 days. So just thinking about the processing capability in the human brain, we have to think more about leveraging AI. And And I know artificial intelligence as a buzzword, there's a lot of maybe misunderstanding about what that means. I mean, there's hope and excitement, and there's these visions of all these sci-fi blockbuster movies, but it's also a little bit different than machine learning. And I'm really interested if maybe you could give our listeners just a better understanding of kind of the future of medicine and how it's going to be enabled by AI. And and then what's, you know, how would you describe for the layperson the difference between AI and machine learning? And, you know, where does that fit in into the, the value-based care paradigm? I think you're right in that artificial intelligence is kind of a, a buzzword. It, it is a combination of a bunch of elements which make up artificial intelligence, machine learning and artificial intelligence are oftentimes used interchangeably, but I mean, sort of confusing the two is incorrect. Machine learning is a small part of the study of artificial intelligence and refers to a specific subset of computer science related to constructing algorithms that make accurate predictions about future outcome. It's the ability of, of a machine to learn from its input, which is a bit different from deep learning, which is a subset of sort of machine learning. So it's kind of a complex set of different tools that got put together and defined as artificial intelligence. One element that's really important is the ability to do, for example, natural language processing, which we used to have to program a computer, but if a computer can actually read nat natural language or can recognize speech, then it, it, it changes the paradigm of what it can learn from us. And so it's pretty exciting. I, I think there are many, many aspects of these tools that can begin to help us understand patterns differently. In Norway, in Tromsø, I was at the northernmost university there, and they were looking at video clip of individuals who were depressed and trying to understand whether or not the way they were talking and what they were saying and how they were saying it was predictive of suicide. And the machine would look at what they were saying and understand from learning from those who successfully committed suicide and how different they were expressing what they were saying, what it was that could perhaps predict somebody as being suicidal. And when you talk to a psychiatrist who's done this for 40 years, they have a nuance sometimes. They sort of sense that somebody is saying something differently, but a machine can perhaps pick up on that and help us inform us because they can look at that pattern in a way that we can't. So I think that that can help us. It can help us because we're kind of not able to do that as a human being in terms of thing. I think one of the big breakthroughs and one of our founders actually is one of the guys that did that was the ability of a machine of learning, of, of artificial intelligence, of, of those elements that make that up to reverse engineer itself. So it can look at itself 
and understand where it might have made a mistake. At IBM, we were, I don't know, let's say 88.7% accurate with, with machine learning. And, and that's not good enough. It's not good enough for oncology. It's not good enough for, for, for autonomous driving. We don't like it when a machine makes a mistake, right? If, if, if a machine is operating a car and it causes a crash, it's a huge issue. But of course, we know human beings do that every hour, right? <laughs> Being able to have a machine look at itself and, and, and actually identify where it's made a mistake begins to bring up the predictability, begins to bring up the accuracy into that 99.97 range. And then we begin to get at maybe we could actually have an autonomous vehicle. Maybe there's enough information in that machine, in that artificial intelligence, that it can self-drive. I think it's pretty complex, but I think it's pretty exciting in that we're beginning to get at an understanding of, for the first time, for example, last year, a machine was able to outperform a human being in inscribing what a doctor was dictating. It could understand as well, if not better, what that person was saying than a human being could. That breakthrough has allowed us to have many, many tools that are automated. And unfortunately for me, <laughs> what it is predicted is that most of my interactions on a telephone with any major company are going to be through artificial intelligence. Um, you know, and, and being a social animal, I actually want to speak to a person. <laughs> but, but those are the elements, I think, that are probably pretty important, but would certainly entertain further questions and thoughts about it. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you sharing, you know, your insights on, you know, technology and innovation and just really excited about the work that you're doing there at Innovacer to lead in digital transformation. And as we wrap up our conversation today, I really wanted to go back to like team-based care. You know, as we talk about technology, it's one thing to have access to advanced analytics and understand what interventions you have to do, but you really have to reorient the workforce to, to really focus on delivering care in a more relationship-driven, preventative, holistic, uh, tech-enabled, team-based way. And that's going to require in and of itself a, a complete change in the way we think about the delivery of healthcare. And I couldn't be more excited about the partnership that Innovacer has with the College of Health Professions at Western Governors University and launching a value-based certificate program for the healthcare industry. And this is going to be an initiative that really recognizes this movement towards value and really provides a support structure for those individuals that are really looking to get reskilled and up skilled for the future of value-based care and the scale and impact of workforce skill really is the, I, I think, the force multiplier or that impedance for change and moving this movement to value along. And it's going to be really important for us to have a workforce that's focused more on outcomes and less on transactions. And they have to develop specific competencies and quality and population health and care coordination and data and analytics and care delivery and governance and just on and on and on. So I wanted to, you know, Dr. Grundy, get your perspective on the importance of competency-based education and healthcare transformation and, and just better understand kind of your views on workforce development as a top priority and value-based care? And, you know, where do you think groups like the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative or Care as One supporting peer learning, and then ultimately where um, higher education can come in through programs to really help the workforce establish competencies? What part does that play in this movement to value-based care? Now, going back to the basics, 
three legs of the stool. It's the cultural shift away from an episode of care to managing the population, which is the first leg of that stool. And I think that is the most difficult. That's the learning. That's the education. That's the cultural shift that has to take place. Because culture is so important and cultural learning is so important, to shift away from doing something the way we used to do it to doing something that makes sense for us now with the tools that we have, that takes education and training. That takes a lot of thought management. That is just the most difficult element of, of those three legs of the stool, the cultural shift, the payment change, and the technology. You know, technology is easy. Payment change is political change, and that's easy compared to changing somebody's mind, right? That is the most difficult. And that's the task that you've taken upon yourself in the journey that, that the Western Governors University is involved in, in setting up the ability to actually provide that training necessary for that cultural shift. I just applaud you for doing that. It's just so important. Thank you, Dr. Grundy, for you know your support, your leadership. The world is a better place for your work in healthcare and what you've done, you know, for our country and really creating trust and relationship in healthcare and really driving a movement towards activated primary care in a medical home environment. Thank you so much for joining us this week in the race to value. How can people find out more about the work that you're doing there at Innovacer and, and how can they follow you and, and, and keep up to speed on all the great things that you're up to. Oh, that's wonderful. Please look at caris1.org. Uh, that's a place that we really exchange thoughts and ideas. Please Google and look at the links that exist for the Governor's Western University and the courses that are out there that, that are just really valuable. And another place that, that I'm pretty active is I'm the president of Get the Medication Right Institute. It's a broad-based coalition to try to empower more of that integration of clinical pharmacy and, and primary care, um, you know, in, 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 the, in the three aspects of cultural shift, payment change, and technology. If you Google Get the Medication Right Institute, there, there's a learning system there that's free again. So I'm engaged in all of those and certainly continue to be engaged in the Governor's Western University and the work you're doing. I think that's a really valuable tool. Thank you, Dr. Grundy. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you.